Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, the latest on the investigation into a major intel leak and the arrest of a high-ranking RCMP official. Also, do Canada's election laws go too far in trying to regulate the spread of so-called fake news? The Canadian Constitution Foundation has launched a legal challenge. Plus, Cheech and Chong are back together and hitting the road. We catch up with one half of the iconic duo, Canada's own Tommy Chong. In 2018, the RCMP was supporting an FBI investigation, and through the course of this file, the RCMP uncovered possible internal corruption. We took immediate action and launched an investigation into the alleged activities. So we did get something out of this press conference today. That is RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky confirming that indeed there was a U.S. connection uh, to this investigation to Cameron Ortiz who, of course, is the director general of an intelligence unit at the RCMP, who is facing charges under the Security of Information Act, as well as criminal code provisions for allegedly trying to disclose classified material to a foreign entity or terrorist group. In terms of motive, what entity was involved, what kind of information... Uh, We still don't know at this point, Uh, but obviously we have learned much more about this story since it broke last week. Joining us for the latest is Mercedes Stevenson, uh, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief. Mercedes, thanks for making some time for us here. Thanks for having me. All right. So in terms of information we may have learned at this press conference or getting some of uh, the reporting from Global News confirmed at this press conference, where, where are we at here this afternoon? Well, not not a lot of confirmation, but certainly that confirmation of the U.S. link that we had first reported, that it was, in fact, the Americans uh, and their investigation that resulted in Canada finding this out. And uh, Commissioner Lucky was very careful in what she said there. She said that they had been helping with an investigation. Well, we know what that investigation was. Our sources tell us uh, it was the 2015 investigation into a company called Phantom Secure. Phantom Secure produced encrypted technology for cell phones, that allowed criminal syndicates to evade police detection. So groups like the Sinaloa Drug Cartel or the Hells Angels would use this to traffic drugs, to coordinate murders. Uh, And we have the CEO himself at one point, the police say, telling an officer in Las Vegas that it could also be used to target and kill police informants because it had GPS on it. So some pretty serious technology. And the man who ran that company, Vincent Ramos, is a Canadian as well. He's from Richmond, B.C., and he was arrested in 2018 at the beginning of 2018 by the Americans. There was documentation on his computer that showed he had been approached by somebody who had sensitive RCMP information offering to sell him that information. My source says he did not take it because he was worried that it was some kind of a trap. But he was not able to tell investigators who was behind it, but uh, it was clear that there had been contact. So that then triggered the RCMP here to start looking at who would have had access to that kind of highly sensitive criminal intelligence and, and sorting back through basically everyone who touched that file. Eventually, they got to Cameron Ortis, and uh, they did a little what they call a, a sneak peek, where they go and look into the condo or the home in advance before the arrest happens. And uh, what they found uh, was certainly gave them cause, my source alleges, to move in. And that was terabytes of information, hard drives, computers, highly sensitive, highly classified information that should never have left RCMP headquarters. All right. So this is the investigation that that, that got him on their radar, but it doesn't necessarily tell us the, the nature of the information or whom he might have offered it to. 
Well, we know that he offered that to Ramos. So we do know yes. that one case that he was dealing with that. We don't know if there's more than one charge, right? So what are the other ones? And those are just the ones that they allege they know about. We still don't have a sense of how many times this is alleged to have happened. Uh, if 2015 was the first time he attempted to make a sale, if, if he in fact did that. Uh, or if there was other attempts, were they all criminal in nature? Were there foreign entities that involved foreign governments or uh, other kinds of groups? So this is really where the concern is. is there still really is, is very little uh, of a complete picture of what's going on. And a lot of that is because investigators are still digging through. They've got to go through all of his bank accounts. They've got to try to track down his entire cyber footprint uh, and figure out who he was communicating with, when, where, how. So there's still a lot of questions here. The breadth and scale of this is just astonishing. Uh, but we don't know whether or not he successfully managed to, to sell even a, a single iota of data. Uh, but the concern is that given what he had access to and given the amount he had allegedly squirreled away at home, um, if that was sold, that creates some pretty serious concern. Right. Even making that information available or letting it be known that it's available is, is a serious offense. But I guess maybe the best case scenario here is, is that he tried to offer it to some people. There were no takers. Uh, and that might at least contain the damage. That would be the hope. Uh, but even the fact he was able to take this out of the building creates a problem for Canada because, you know, allies are saying, how is this possible? How did mm-hmm. he walk out with this amount of intelligence? And by the way, a lot of it could have been their intelligence because he had full access to the intelligence they were sharing with Canada. So even if he, he did nothing with any of it and, and we contain the national security side uh, or the allegations against him are totally false, the fact that he was able to remove it, as the police allege, from the building, that in itself raises serious questions about how the RCMP is doing security. It does. So given that that we have the press conference today, we have the statement yesterday from the commissioner, neither of which provided a lot of new information. Why do you think then that that there is this this desire, though, to be communicating publicly about this? Are they trying to reassure Canadians? Are they trying to reassure our allies? Is it both? I don't know. I mean, the, the bigger question for me was why they waited this long. This story came out on Friday, um, and now it is Tuesday, and this is the first time that we were actually hearing from the commissioner of the RCMP, where they're taking any kinds of questions. That's that's a long time on a story that is that big. That does not suggest to me that they were keen to get out in front of this. All right, well, we'll see what uh, emerges in the coming days. Mercedes, appreciate the update. Thanks so much for this. Thank you. That is Mercedes Stevenson, uh, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief, who has been uh, leading the coverage of this story. Uh, Some confirmation today. Uh, from the RCM commissioner uh, on an element of the story that Global News had first reported. The connection with this investigation into Phantom Secure, an encrypted communication service. Story here today, an outfit that sold untraceable smartphones to criminals so they could evade police. Phantom Secure was dismantled last year by authorities in the U.S., Canada, Australia, Hong Kong, and Thailand. The arrest of Phantom Secure CEO Vincent Ramos in Washington State in March 2018 led police to sensitive RCMP information that had been offered up for sale. According to these sources, while Ramos did not know the identity of the person allegedly brokering the RCMP information, Canadian investigators traced it to a list of suspects who had access to it. So that's at least one element of this story, allegedly, that this information had been offered to this guy was the CEO of this, this company that was under investigation by multiple police forces in various different countries. It sounds as though he felt it was maybe a trap, uh, that he was being offered this as maybe part of some kind of a sting operation, so he said no. 
but he didn't really know who was offering it. But that allowed the RCMP to work backward and figure out who had, who would have had access to that information in the first place. So it might give us a bit of a clue into the broader case here. And as Mercedes alluded to, a big part of this is going to be investigating this guy's bank accounts, this situation. Now, the RCMP commissioner was asked today about uh, other reports suggesting that maybe he had debt problems. So this could just be a case of somebody who had information that was valuable, who was desperate for money and was willing to sell it on the open market to obviously some some people who shouldn't have it. That That's one possible explanation for this. But given the, the breadth of information that uh, he had access to. Uh, as it pertains to China, as it pertains to Russia in particular, there, there's a lot of concern here that maybe he was acting as, as an agent for one of those countries or some other foreign entity that could be a, an adversary at some level for Canada. So uh, th- there is a lot of concern, obviously, just the mere fact that he had all of this, had all of this a- at his home, allegedly. Our, our allies are understandably very nervous about that because it would also include their own intelligence that gets shared among the Five Eyes allies. So it is a big, big deal. We haven't learned a lot more about it uh, in the RCMP statement yesterday, the press conference today. Uh, but for whatever reason, they're, they're trying to appear as though they are on top of things, trying to reassure somebody. Maybe it's our allies. Maybe it's all of us. We're in the midst of an election campaign, and I think people should be on guard for unreliable information. There was one little kerfuffle today. I saw, just to give you an example, uh, Rick Mercer, comedian Rick Mercer, uh, was upset because there was a conservative candidate somewhere in B.C. that had posted a meme on his Facebook page uh, with a picture of Rick Mercer and something that was supposedly a quote from him where Rick Mercer was allegedly saying, vote conservative. And Rick Mercer said, wait a second, I didn't say that. You basically just made up a quote attributed it to me and put it on your page as an endorsement so yeah i mean that that's the kind of thing that should be called out and denounced you can't just make up a quote from a famous person and say look this guy endorsed me so i think we do need to take what we see with a, a grain of salt and ensure that we're doing what we can i guess to get reliable information but to what extent can we look to the government to try to regulate so-called fake news well, the government is attempting to do that. Section 91 uh, of the, um, the Elections Act, the Canada Elections Act, prohibits certain kinds of false statements during a federal election period. Well, the Canadian Constitution Foundation is launching a constitutional challenge against that provision of the law. And given that we're in the midst of an election campaign, there is a degree of urgency to it. Uh, more, by the way, at theccf.ca. But joining us on the line is Derek Frum, who's a staff lawyer with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Derek, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for the invitation, Rob. All right. Well, explain then the, this, this Section 91 of the Canada Elections Act and, and what it does. Okay. So what this what this provision in the act does is it makes it illegal uh under sanction under criminal sanction to spread so-called false information so that that means making a false statement about a candidate prospective candidate a leader of a political party or a public figure associated with that political party now if you say something like they've committed an offense or you know you make this up or you go to press too soon with something uh, or that they're under investigation for something, and it turns out later to be false, that you acted quickly, 
even if that was the best information at the time, you violated one of the provisions we're challenging. The second one is if you make a false statement about the same group of people regarding their citizenship, place of birth, their education, professional qualifications, or the membership in a particular group or association. And what ends up happening is the way the Act is currently amended, and it was recently amended to read this way, is it appears to us that uh, this that an important distinction has been lost. Previously, what was there prohibited people from intentionally creating so-called fake news and distributing it. Mm-hmm. Now, now it seems to have removed that intention bit. And that's important because we don't really know until a court tells us, we don't really know what the word false, what public figure and associated with mean because they're left undefined by the statute. So right now, this is a very broad statute that will absolutely 100% have a chilling effect on the political speech of Canadians during an election period. So this would apply to anybody. This isn't certainly isn't restricted to just elect electoral candidates. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, it's you and me talking on the radio right now. It's a blogger who has no does not make his living from blogging, but just does it on the you know the weekends or in evenings. It's that person who just retweets things unthinkingly. You know, I didn't check to see if my article was 100% correct. I happen to agree with it, so it, you know, confirms my bias, so I retweet it. Turns out later it was false. Well, I've retweeted that. I've actually committed, potentially committed an an offense under this act. And the maximum penalty here is quite, quite big. A $50,000 fine and up to five years in prison. So this, this is something that Canadians should know about. If this law is in effect, as it is right now, because we're in an election period, you are potentially liable for these enormous penalties just for retweeting something that later out turns to be false. Yeah. And even if you meant to do it with the best of intentions. Well, that's the thing. There's a whole world of difference between being wrong and lying. Yes. Uh, but it doesn't yeah. appear as though there's that, that distinction is being made here. That's correct. And here's an academic distinction that I think we're going to try to make some hay of. Now, most of these provisions should be aimed at what's called disinformation. This this is aimed at misinformation. Now, there's a technical distinction between the two. Misinformation, you can think of it as the lesser of two evils here. It's just that inadvertent inadvertent sharing of things that turn out to be false later on. But now, disinformation, on the other hand, is something that's intentionally manufactured in order to mislead people. Now, I don't think we're going to have any problem whatsoever with saying that disinformation should be dealt with differently than misinformation. But if, for instance, if I just accidentally retweet something, it was an article, let's just say it was in the Calgary Herald. There's an emerging news story. Full information is not yet available to the the editors of the paper. And they put an article out because it's an emerging story. Some of the facts turn out to be incorrect within two or three days. And I've retweeted that. Am I now liable under this? Well, I've passed on misinformation, but we think, you know, disinformation is far more serious. And that's when you intentionally create something that is intended to deceive people. And, uh, you know, that could also be violating other laws as well, not just this one. That's interesting because this is supposed to be related to matters that could um, affect the results of the election. But but that seems really vague, too. It does. And, you know, when I retweet something, I, I don't, you know, I don't have any followers hardly at all. But I like to think that, hey, I'm putting in my little two cents here. 
And I, people do this with the intention of affecting election results. When you make a comment at the bottom of an article on a website or on Facebook, usually the point is to try to sway people's opinion to your own. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the thing here that is very important is that inevitably, just a fact of life, it's sad, but it's a fact of life that false information, intentional or not, is going to be disseminated, disseminated during an election. We can't avoid it. But now a more effective approach is not to uh, sanction this with criminal legislation, but instead let's equip people to be able to deal with misinformation and disinformation both so they can analyze it, critically think about it, come to their own decision. That is where we should be focusing our efforts here, not on, on criminal sanction, which will absolutely have a chilling effect. Because, for instance, in our, our materials that we've served already on the governments of Canada and Ontario, we uh, have two affidavits from two well-known people in Canada. One of them works for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And CTF has chosen to pull their punches during this writ period because they don't really know how this law will be enforced. Mm-hmm. There's a website of theirs that they have... Uh, it will not be accessed by the public, and they are not buying purchasing ads related to the election during the writ period. And there's a local blogger, Corey Morgan. He's well-known in Alberta politics. Yep. He could li- be liable under this law for, you know, disinformation. So, for instance, if I were to write a blog and refer to Justin Trudeau as, as grossly unqualified and uneducated, well, you know, what I've done is I've made a potentially a false statement about his education. I could be liable under this act for this uh, this fine and imprisonment because mm-hmm. you could go to court and the court would say, hey, look, he actually does have a post-secondary degree. You can't say he's uneducated. Well, you know, there's a certain margin of, of public discourse where we should afford people leeway in expressing their opinion on these sorts of things because I might be making some sort of a, a point other than his technical qualifications from a university. But what's going to happen inevitably is that Canadians are going to choose to pull their punches. They're going to self-censor. They're going to avoid saying things that they really think might be true, but they're not going to risk it. That is the chilling effect that this will have. And when is a chilling effect most dastardly? But during an election. I mean, election is the whole point of our democratic process in a lot of ways. This is when our freedom of expression matters most, when we do try to convince other people to share our point of view. And, you know, the court, Supreme Court has recognized this many times. Back in 1986, one of the judges in the court said that freedom of expression is one of the fundamental concepts that's formed the historical basis for the development of our political, social, and educational institutions in Western society. Representative democracy, as we know it today, is in large part a product of freedom of expression, discussing varying ideas and depending and depends upon its maintenance and protection. So the court has had these sorts of statements all through its history, including, here's a great one that uh, originated out of Alberta. The vital importance of freedom of expression cannot be overemphasized. Therefore, it should only be restricted in the clearest circumstances. To us, this is not the clearest of circumstances. And the reason is because we know or we believe that elections are just so vitally important for a healthy democracy. That's when citizens have their greatest power to have their say heard. And if we start restricting speech at that time and we cede that restriction to the government, 
that to me seems like it's a dangerous precedent to set. It, it, it's interesting because I thought about this yesterday, and we get a lot of texts from listeners during the show, and you know, and they're not shy in many cases about sharing their opinions. Uh, there was a text yesterday from a listener, and, and <laughs> it made reference to Justin Trudeau attending Fidel Castro's funeral. Uh, now, I didn't read it on the air because I thought, you know, I don't think that's right. I don't think he actually did. Um, so I went back and looked, and yeah, I mean, there was talk after Fidel Castro died that Trudeau might go. Obviously, Trudeau put out a statement at the time that a lot of people thought was a little too fawning of Fidel Castro, but ultimately, Justin Trudeau did make the decision not to go uh, to the funeral. So I, I can understand maybe how someone might misremember that. I, I really find it hard to believe that that person knew that Justin Trudeau didn't go to the funeral, but chose to lie about it in sending a text in the hopes that we would put that information out there to try to affect the election. And maybe it had nothing to do with the election. Maybe it was more of a commentary on Castro than, than Trudeau. But the idea that we need government intervention to, to police that sort of thing seems like a massive overreach. Yeah, yeah, and I agree. Now, that, that plays into the distinction very well of misinformation versus disinformation. The, the, your texter probably just fell prey like I might have. I mean, that, again, my confirmation bias, I may want to believe that Trudeau did that. Mm-hmm. And so I may too quickly hit that retweet or like button, yeah. right? And, and that's why we can't penalize people for this. And, you know, this is important. It's not like there's something immoral or untoward going on when I do that. I, I, you know, I, when confronted later on with the truth, I'd like to think I would say, oh, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I misunderstood, and I'll retract that, because I don't want to be known as somebody who spreads false information. Now, well, I think what's more important is that we don't go after all those Canadian bloggers and tweeters and the CTF and organizations like that and restrict you know, the, the natural and healthy sharing of information and uh, refining of what's true and what's not true through public discourse. What we need to do, if, if we have legislation that is addressed at these things, is go after the true culprit. And the true culprit, as I'm led to believe, is those foreign states that like to come in and create false information and have campaigns that influence elections. If that is happening, and again, I have no knowledge of that, but if that is the sort of thing that does happen, then that's actually disinformation. And we need to have legislation that focuses on that, not that chills the political speech of Canadians during a writ period. All right. Well, we're in the writ period. So there, as I said at the outset, there's some urgency here. What, what happens next? Well, we've uh, right now the ball is in the court of the attorneys general, and we've asked to uh, have an emergency application. So this hopefully will proceed quickly. Uh, we don't know what the court will schedule things, how this court will, court will schedule things. It'd be really nice if we could have it before the end of the writ period, sooner the better. Uh, but uh, it depends on the court schedule. And likely, likely the other side will drag its feet as much as possible, we expect. Yeah. All right, well, this is going to be one to watch more at theccf.ca. Derek, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Rob. All right. That is uh, Derek Fromm, staff lawyer with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. I do think we need uh, way more clarity over this. Uh, If there are groups out there that are intentionally trying to deceive Canadians one way or the other, and what they're putting out during an election campaign, maybe there is some way then that, um, you know, the chief electoral officer or somebody can deal with that in a certain way. But this casts such an incredibly wide net 
uh, that you might end up ensnaring all kinds of people who were not trying to spread misinformation deliberately or disinformation, as, as Derek says, a big distinction there, and are not trying to do so in a way that they're, they're trying to affect the election. Again, yes, let's use the example of the, um, the Rick Mercer quote. If you are deliberately finding Canadian celebrities and making up quotes about them and posting memes online to imply that they are endorsing a certain candidate or party, uh, you should probably be called out for that. There should probably be some kind of consequence if that's a deliberate, a demonstrably deliberate strategy on your part. Who is it? It's Dave, man. Will you open up? I got the stuff. Who? Dave, man. Open up. Dave? Yeah, Dave. Dave's not here. Uh, it's classic. Uh, yes, Cheech and Chong, the original stoners, uh, are still going strong. After breaking up way back in the early 80s, the two are back together and on the road. Cheechandchong.com is the website. They're going to be here in Calgary, October 4th at the Southern Alberta Jubilee Auditorium. Obviously, a lot has changed in the 50 or so years since Cheech and Chong first became a team. Most notably, the fact that marijuana has indeed been legalized. Uh, but obviously, uh, both Cheech Marin and Tommy Chong have been uh, very busy over the years uh, with their respective careers. But I know fans are really excited uh, to see them back together and back out on the road. Joining us on the line to talk about it all is one half of this iconic duo, the one and only Tommy Chong. Tommy, welcome to the program. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, and thank you for having me on your program. Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. I mean, you just turned eighty last year, which is which is just incredible uh, because you still seem so busy. But uh, talk a bit about you know why why you're doing this tour and what what keeps you so motivated. Well, you know, since uh, Canada got pot legal, you know, I, we realized that no one knows what the hell to do with <laughs> there. So uh, we're going to tour around Canada and show everybody what they're supposed to do with the pot. Well, someone has to. Experience. We've, been, we've got over 50 years experience. And so, so we're up there to teach Canadians how to, you know, how to smoke it and how to, you know, how to cook with it. You know, just how to deal with it. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of work to be done up there. Did you ever think it would happen, legalization? Well, you know, I'm a pothead, so I really don't think. <laughs> Not about thinking about anything you know i'm just glad i can find my car keys when i need them <laughs> yeah no kidding. Well, i haven't really you know it's always been legal for me so when people tell me oh it's legal in canada or legal you know california or you know I, i'm very happy for them but what do you think of the idea of a cannabis industry now the can oh it's great Great, well, you know, there always was a cannabis industry since the beginning of uh, Prohibition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, before Prohibition, there was a cannabis industry. It was called hemp. That's right. And it was the biggest uh, cash crop in, uh, in, in, in North America, thanks to, uh, you know, I think it was Benjamin Franklin that introduced hemp, uh, you know, and uh, it, was, uh, it was a great crop. You know, we made rope and tails and all sorts of stuff with it. Uh, 
so, you know, now it's, uh, you know, because when we found out, you know, how good it is medically, uh, now it's, it's the most popular uh, uh, industry in the world. It's the fastest growing industry in the world, you know, it's surpassing everything, gold, everything. It's just... Uh, <laughs> I keep laughing at the the double entendre, but you know it's a growing. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. It is. You know the greatest thing about pot is that you need to grow more. You can't just hoard it in your safe. Although I do that, but uh, you know it's it's uh, disposable and reusable. Mm-hmm. What about cannabis culture? How how has that been affected by legalization? Again, we've always had a cannabis culture. It was called jazz, yeah. or rock and roll, or music, you know. And uh, and that's uh, what you do when you get high. You listen to music, or you play music, you know, or you talk about music, or you dance. Or, you know, you go to a nightclub and you enjoy. I had a nightclub in Canada, uh, in uh, Vancouver, and it was a bottle club. And when pot really came into in the 60s, everybody went from drinking to smoking uh, pot. And uh, I seemed to change myself because the, the cops used to have to come in and, you know, because it was the bottle of, you know, Canadian liquor, so antiquated, that, uh, uh, you know, the cops would come in and confiscate uh, the alcohol that was, you know, under the tables. And then pot came in. They didn't have anymore because there were no no one was drinking, and so they'd be looking under the tables, and the potheads would be laughing their ass off watching them. You know, so um, no, I've I've seen the change, and and I'm I'm just happy that it's happening. Yeah. And, of course, Vancouver is where it all began 50 years ago, right? Where uh, Cheech and Chong were, were first formed as a group. Yep, yep. That's where we, uh, that's where I met the little guy. <laughs> <laughs> he was running from the law. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was up there hiding like books, casting the Sundance Kid. Now, there, there was a time, obviously, when you, you know, you two went your separate ways. Um, but w- when did you first get back together? It was, what, about a, a decade ago? Well, yeah, but in necessity, you know, he's reached the point in his, in his life where uh, he doesn't get it. Get it. Well, Nash, I think Nash Bridges stopped uh, for me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was, you know, he didn't have much to do. And, uh, and, and we tried to get together, but it didn't work out very well. You know, we had a big argument. But my son, uh, Paris, he... Uh, he intercepted an email of mine that I was sending to Chief telling him that it was my him, and then he changed it to say, oh, let's get back together. <laughs> Next thing you know, Chief and I are doing shows again. So, so it's because of my son, you know, because Chief didn't have much to do. I didn't have much to do. So it was like uh, he, he got the old jalopy up and running again. And we've been going at it ever since. Yeah. Uh, I think we got back together in what year? Uh, I think it was 2010 or 2011, right? You guys did that video together? Yeah. Right? 
Yeah, I think it was 08, and then we, then we finally got back. Yeah, we broke up in, in 84. Yeah, isn't that crazy? We've been along, yeah, like 20 years or so. And then, uh, but, you know, getting back together was like, <laughs> it was so natural. It was funny. We had sort of a rehearsal. <laughs> yeah. And then the next thing you know, we're on stage, and it was like we never left. It was weird. Just pick up where you left off. Yeah, yeah, we just picked that and we just kept doing it. And now, but my wife had joined me as my Shelby, and so she's in the show, and uh, because that was one of the stipulations, you know that. Well, it's interesting too, and you know, obviously, you, you got the fans. Right, I mean the fans who were there through through it all and through the seventies and eighties, but you, you got a young fan base too, right? There, there are people who were born long well, after yeah. all of this came out, and they're they're big into you guys. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, their parents and their grandparents were just told us. Uh, I was in a show called That Seventy Show, and so I've got a lot of That Seventy Show fans. Yeah, uh, Cheech, you know, he's he done a ton of movies and. TV and everything, and social, but in social media that really, uh, really uh, got us because you can get our movies anytime, you know. And, and, uh, and being on social media that really brings uh, people in now. Yeah, well, it's a different world, isn't it? You're pretty active on social media. You're, you're on Twitter. You're, you're out there. You, you know how this works. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Well. My son, again, you know, most of my, my kids, just the kids. It wasn't for the kids. I'd still be uh, using a landline and trying to type on a typewriter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so it's uh, October 4th. What, what should people expect? A lot of fun. You know, actually, we're, we're it's like going to school. You know, you're going to see a slice of life that, that passed him by, but... It's still here, and it's still happening, and uh, it's just a matter of uh, watching old craftsmen <laughs> do their mm-hmm. job, because we've been doing it so long that it, it, it transcends any kind of, uh, you know, uh, these guys really know what they're doing, <laughs> because that's who they are. You know, we've, we've uh, perfected the art of uh, entertaining you know, yeah. To the point where, you know, we take them on a nice journey, especially if they're hot. You know? <laughs> and the thing is, it, it, you know, we've got such a history that, uh, you know, it's like the Rolling Stones. You know, uh, you know what you're going to see, and, and if Mick's still alive, you well, know, that's a lot of fun. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the same as Chi Chi Chong, you know. I mean, <laughs> it's been a long time, but, uh, you know, the fact. We, we get a positive for being alive. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know people are excited uh, for the show. October 4th, Southern Alberta Jubilee Auditorium here in Calgary. Much more at CheechandChong.com. Uh, Tommy, all the best with this tour, and uh, you know, congrats on everything. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. My pleasure, my friend. We'll see you there. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. One and only Tommy Chong, CheechandChong.com, October 4th here in Calgary at the um, Southern Alberta Jubilee Auditorium. Now, a couple of texts that came in here. This one says, I saw Cheech and Chong at the Jube in 1970 or 71. A lot of young kids must have convinced their parents to take them to see them. The place was full, but after a number of F-bombs in the first 15 minutes, the Jube was about half empty. It was pretty funny. 
Another one says, I wonder if Tommy remembers homeroom 31 at Crescent Heights High School. I was a classmate in 1957. Uh, that from Wiles says, I have tickets to the show. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.